feel like Please. I deserve a blackjack. Let's see it. <laughs> you do too. My oh, yes. goodness! Let's go! <laughs> Hello, my name is Matt Bros of Lockton. In my role, I consult with employers all around the country related to their employee benefits strategy. We're in conversations all the time about how to attract the best talent and get the best out of their people. Work ethic, integrity, those are all traits of people that pursue excellence and it doesn't even stop there. From the boardroom to the storeroom, we're gonna find out what drives those people. Welcome to the excellence culture. This is gonna be an excellent adventure. Welcome to the Excellence Culture. Um, I'm Matt Brose, and I am so excited for two things happening today. Uh, first of all, the guests that I have today, Johnny Yellock, thank you so much uh, for so many things, for who you are, first of all, and what you've done for our country. Johnny is an American hero, you know, when it comes down to it. And so, Johnny, first, I mean, I think there's probably an elephant in the room of what's all this on the table, but I would like first for you to to just kind of do more of a formal introduction to yourself um, and and maybe your experience in the military especially. Staff Sergeant Johnny Yellock. Um, I come from a dual veteran family. Both my parents served in the military and then I went off to, to do the same. I was, I was in the Air Force. I was a combat controller which is a special operator in the military and served two deployments in Afghanistan. My first one was pretty tame. My second one was uh, more adventurous, you might say. Yeah. Yeah. Dedicated my life to honoring all the people that got me to that point. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we're going to get into your amazing story, and it's a very humbling story, um, especially humbling for me. And uh, uh, but just everybody get very excited about hearing your story. Um, you know, he's made um, one of the biggest sacrifices we could ever make, and. Um, and so we're going to get into that. But I, I certainly want to do the second announcement. This is why we've got poker chips here. This is why we've got a card shoe here. Is that Johnny is raising money for a charity that he is very involved with. Um, do you run this charity? Yes, I'm the okay. executive director of Boots for Warriors. Okay. Cool. Right here in Dallas. Cool. And so I am from now on on the excellence culture. When I'm interviewing somebody that's associated with the charity, um, we're going to play blackjack. And I'm, start, I'm starting Johnny off with 100 bucks. Whatever we end up with at the end of our conversation, I'm going to donate to the charity. Okay? So um, it's kind of like the hot ones thing that we're seeing on YouTube, right? We're, we're going to do something while we're talking. And I'm going to try to be a dealer. I was recently in Lake Tahoe, and I watched these dealers, and I don't know if I know what I'm doing at all. So we'll, we'll find see. out. Remember, I'm just an insurance guy. So. It's just counting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I don't know if I count that good. So we will, we will see. But I'm going to start. Um, I'm going to start dealing. And while we're dealing, um, the first thing I want to do is just kind of get um, into your story, kind of your upbringing. Um, so let's go ahead and just kind of get started. Two dollars. Oh, that's a good start. Yeah, we're going to two dollar minimum. Everybody knows that we're winging this right now. This is the first time. You, that this is, is a not really a loaded good, deck. That is a really good start, by the way. Um, so we've got an eight and a six showing. Oh, soft seventeen. Yes, and so I've got a four showing. What would you like to do there? Would you like to? Well, some people would say that on a soft seventeen against a fourteen, you would stay. But 
my uncle would say that you always hit a soft so I'll take it I'll take one hard like that all right so we've got 16 now I've got a 16 so now I've yeah. got to stay against your 14 yeah for sure all right Bam. so I've got 14 let's Big see card 19. Nice. Oh, all right. man. All right. So, so tell me a little bit about the money out of yeah. the out of the nonprofit. Does yeah. that feel good? <laughs> well, we'll see. There's there's going to be a lot of hands. But tell me a little bit about your upbringing. Um, I would love to kind of hear where little Johnny. Yes. You know. It all started, uh, you know, with both my parents. Like I imagine you did as well. Uh, but my dad did 27 years in the in the Air Force. My mom did 20 years in the Air Force. Uh, my mom was a radio and television broadcaster, so I'd wake up in places like Iceland, where we lived for a couple of years, and see my mom on TV or hear her on the radio. And so she was quite the stickler for my English uh, papers whenever I bring them home. She would edit them much worse than my teachers would. But uh, my dad was a crew chief, worked on F-4s during Vietnam, F-15s. My dad flew F-4s in Vietnam. Okay. Yeah, he was in the Air Force for 21 years. Well, I have to connect those dots Yeah. see if they were ever on the same island. Yeah. And then my dad and mom both retired out of San Antonio, so that's where I spent most of my most of my life was in San Antonio. High school, in the middle of my freshman year, we moved up here to Keller, Texas, and uh, graduated from Keller. Growing up, all I wanted to do was be um, in the Ch Winston Churchill ROTC program. Okay. And San Antonio, that's, that is the best that you can do yeah. and win national championships every single year. So middle school and then going into my high school year, I joined the ROTC program there. My plan was to go to A&M, be in the Corps. And then my parents got out of the military and moved up to Keller, Texas. Well, in San Antonio, that's military capital of the world, right? In DFW in 1998, uh, it wasn't the um, the most affluent schools that had ROTC programs. Mm -hmm. Up here, ROTC was seemed more like a correctional, yeah. you know, institution yeah, on campuses. Yeah. Unfortunately, unfortunately yeah. right? The mindset was different um, as a way to fix kids. You know, they may yeah. be struggling, so ROTC yeah. give them some some structure and some some motivation toward doing good things. Well, uh, Keller High School didn't have an ROTC program, so I got back into band. So, unfortunately, I, I went away from spinning rifles and uh, getting my chest pumped up, doing all the push-ups, uh, and went back to playing the tuba, which I did for three years in middle school and then did for four years in high school. So played the tuba. I would love to tuba see a picture of you with the tuba. For seven years. Uh, even did such cool things as the Tuba Meister's Christmas, where I was on the Riverwalk with all these other tuba players just playing Christmas songs to nothing but melodious tunes from tubas. Uh, you can imagine, <laughs> one, the audience, uh, and two, all the musicians. I mean, I was, I was the youngest probably by 40 years. Um, so not, not the best rap tuba players, but I like to think I, yeah. I rocked it. Yeah. Graduated from Keller High School and went to Tarleton State University and got an engineering degree there. And when I graduated, well, first I graduated in 2002, which means uh, my senior year I watched the Twin Towers fall. I remember watching, I remember the first one hitting and hearing a commotion in the hallway and then getting to my next class and Channel One News being on and watching the second tower get hit by the 
second aircraft and then watching that day trans transpire. Mm -hmm. For the next two weeks, I spent. So did you graduate in '98? I in graduated 2002. No, but high school. Oh, yeah, high school. 2002. High school 2002. Okay. okay. So spent the next two weeks glued to the TV. Yeah. Wanted nothing more than to join the military as soon as I got out of high school, but uh, in my family. Both my parents went to the military right after high school. It was always incumbent upon us that you go to high school, you graduate, you go straight to college, you get your degree, and then if you want to join the military, you can be an officer then. So that's what I did. I graduated and went to Tarleton. Did you have desire to pursue that engineering degree at all? Or? The engineering degree was, uh, the goal was deal to be a pilot. You know, yeah. I wanted to be a pilot. Let me tell you, oh boy, good start. Uh, so I wanted a technical degree, and that's an easy one. So I'll, I'll take a card there. Give me a ten. That's awful. I have a card. Twelve. Great. This is fifteen. Fifteen against a nine. Got to take a card. Six me. <laughs> so I wanted to be uh, a pilot. This is what I feel like when I'm. <laughs> well, here's the problem. I just got to up the ante. You know? Yeah. Okay. I uh, wanted to be a pilot, and like a lot of, you know, young guys, I wanted to do a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. um, enjoying getting my engineering degree, I had an internship for the last year of my time at, at Tarleton, and I loved the work that I did, but it also was um, 2006, I was watching what was happening in the fall of Iraq, uh, the war is heating up, and I could see that it was impacting me a lot more internally than it was anyone that I was surrounding myself with. And I was just uh, overwhelmed with the sense of, you know, I gotta go, I gotta go do something that I can be proud of myself for. So yeah. I got that degree, gave it to my parents. You know, that wasn't the thing that filled me with a sense of accomplishment or pride. And I knew that I needed to do something bigger than myself. So I chose to. Mm follow my parents' footsteps and join the military. Okay, so Air Force, um, obviously it seemed like a given that you were gonna, you know, join the Air Force, but did you consider any other branches? Absolutely not. Okay, yeah. No. Um, That's 47 years of watching what the Air Force did for my family, right? I mean, my parents, Pretty much on their own, raised two kids all over the world by themselves, supported yeah. by this military, which then poured everything they had into that, and it provided the means for an incredible uh, result. So yeah, I saw what the military did for our family, and I wanted to do the same. Okay, so it was the Air Force all the way. For yeah. Sure. Okay, so when you um, when you started, what was the process for those who have never pursued military? What what's the process of finding out what your role is going to be within even the military? Well, uh, as a matter of fact, as I drive to this office today, I'm Ooh, driving past. Twenty-two. Yeah, this is fun. <laughs> I'm driving past the uh, office for MEPS, Military Entrance Processing. Um, so if somebody wants to join the military. They take either the ASVAB, which is the test for aptitude test for to be enlisted, or the um, I think it's called the OFQT, which is for officers. Okay. You, they figure out your aptitude. Based on your aptitude, you have a list of jobs that you can choose from. Okay. Um, in my instance, 
I take those same tests, but because I wanted to do a volunteer career field, I wanted to be a combat controller, a special operations billet, you can choose, as long as you have that minimum score, you can choose what you want to do. It's also uh, based on the needs of the military, needs of the Air Force at the time. So if you're in war, time of war, you know, the Army was filling spots left and right for engineers, combat engineers, uh, you know, guys to drive trucks, guys to get boots on the ground. They were, they didn't have a choice. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in my instance, I volunteered to be a combat controller. Actually, not true. I volunteered to be EOD, Explosive Ordnance Disposal, which is bomb squad. Okay. My, um, my recruiter convinced me that that would be a better, a better fit for, you know, a career that I could do something on the outside with. I'll finally stay and hope you bust. I mean, this this deck. We have not. You have not won a hand yet. That's all right. It's We're probably gonna get there. It's probably gonna, gonna turn. Through. I you know? think you should put a bunch out right now. I've got a good feeling. That's. I mean, that's what you should do in gambling. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm watching it. I'm watching it dwindle here. Okay. So volunteered EOD. Now, if you give me a blackjack and you're right, okay, good. <laughs> Like you can't just call all the shots and be right all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. So volunteered EOD. Uh, volunteered EOD, and that's also a volunteer career field. So, but if you fail, um, you can try to be another volunteer career field, and if you fail at that, you're out of the military. Mm. So there's a lot of risk there. Yeah. Explosive ordnance disposal. The first seven days, it's a lot of curriculum, and uh, I failed. Right. So uh, they bring me in the office and ask me what I want to do. And I say, I want to be a combat controller. And they laughed at me because you don't fail explosive ordnance disposal and then become yeah. a combat controller. Combat controller is, a, uh, I mean, you're on the battlefield. You're also dealing with explosives. You're setting up C4 charges. You're dropping bombs from aircraft. You're, you know, there's a lot more yeah. that goes on with combat control than explosive ordnance disposal. Um, but I went down to the office, I uh, tried out, and that would start a two-year-long attrition process uh, of becoming a combat controller in the Air Force. So it was, a, it was the greatest thing to have failed in that instant, uh, to pick up the phone and call my dad and tell him the news that I had failed. And he said, well, what do you do? what's next? You know, what are you going to do now? And it's like, I'm going to go be a combat controller. And he's like, well, that's what you want to do in the first place. So it's yeah. kind of God steering me mm-hmm. in the right direction all yeah. along. No doubt. Love that. Yeah, yeah I got to take a card. I think you're probably going to hit. I have to. So I want to talk a little bit. What are you doing here? I have to hit. You don't have to. I mean, a 15 against a 15? Yeah. I got to I beat mean, you. you can. See? 16. Now I'm one up on you. Yeah, okay. I'll stay. Okay, so eight. 11. This is going so well. It's all right, you know? It's not all about winning. You can take these. So I want to hear, and there is, so I, I don't think we've, we've said yet, but these are dollar chips, these are $5 chips, and then those are $10 chips. 
Now, if, so he, not all lost. if he runs out of money, we're going to figure it out. We're still, it's going to be okay. We're, I'll, I'll get you some more money, okay? But, um, so let's talk a little bit about, like, you coming up in the military. And then um, just from what I see, because I've never been in the military, but from an outsider's standpoint is that the military is all about excellence, right? Um, and the training in the military is better than any training in any business, right? And so I'd love for you to just kind of talk a little bit about just that idea of excellence within the military and just how detailed they are, you know? Well, that's a common misconception. Oh, I got a handy. Okay. Mm. I, I still have a really good feeling. <laughs> it's a common misconception, but the military is a business, right? They're yeah. one of the best businesses on the planet uh, because they dedicate so much resources into training and coaching and developing their assets yeah. in order to get the desired outcome from them. Uh, we call it basic training, right? Boot yeah. camp. Yeah. And then you go to technical school. It's a grooming process to get you to exactly what it is they need from you. Yeah. Um, and you know, so when you go to boot camp, there's a baseline. Some people are already above that. So a lot of people are not, and their job is to get you to there. And you go to tech school, get further, um, you know, granular details about your specific task. And um, but to the point of excellence, at least for the Air Force, uh, well, for all, all military branches, excellence is going to be in their their mottos, yeah. right? Um, for the Air Force, it's in our core values. So it's uh, integrity first, yeah. service before self, and excellence in all we do, right? And the order of that matters, right? Yeah. Integrity is first. Yeah. Service before self, I couldn't have, I, I couldn't have done the things I did, uh, the people that get all these medals and accolades, the things that they do, uh, we're not there doing it for that. We're doing it because we believe in what we're doing. We believe in um, you know, why we're there and who we're actually there to support. And then excellence in all we do, and that applies to the first two because um, we care wholeheartedly about doing the job a certain way, getting it done mm -hmm. the right way, the right time, uh, with integrity, with our end user in mind above all, and doing it in a way that uh, you know that you can be proud of. Yeah. So excellence is is an expectation, one hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So and like today, right? I called or yesterday. Right? Yeah. We we're doing our diligence and I, I call you, uh, you know, what time you want to be here? It starts at one o'clock, all right, I'll be there at 1230. And you were like, you're a civilian. And you're like, nah, it's fine. 1250 is fine. You know, <laughs> I said 1245. 1245. <laughs> but I'm still here at 1240. You know, even even that just makes me uncomfortable. I got here at 1230 today. So, yeah. yeah. But my, my golf coach, I, I remember he used to tell me um, early is to be on time, on time is to be late, late is to be dead. Yes. So, well, I would hope that that is derived from the military because yeah. in your job, if you're late, you're not dead. But in our job, on yeah. the battlefield, yeah. uh, that's real life. You know, yeah. Gosh. you get somewhere at the wrong time. Uh, you don't have the right yeah. gear. Uh, you're malnourished, or you don't have enough hydration. You don't show up to the battlefield ready to go. 
Yeah. Yeah. All right, what are so we doing say, here? So there's another one that's easy to say, and that's two is one and one is not. Okay. Right, so you got to have everything you need, and then you got to have an extra, because having one, that goes down. It's no mm. good. I'm going to apply that to the amount of chips I have here soon. <laughs> Jeez. No, we're going we're gonna to get one. Here. I think I have a hit coming. Okay. Or two. All right, 15. Come on. 20. There you go. I'll stay. Come on! <laughs> <laughs> all right. It's all right. I ain't mad at you. Hey, That's progress. You know what? Right that there. is progress you know what? right there. That is good progress. So, um, when you were, sounds like your dad. That's yours. Oh, no, we push. No, we push. Well, then I'll I feel like I need to give you some chips just for pushing. But it sounds like your dad was unreal, very influential in your life. But how about anybody when you were in the military, anybody that you remember that was um, a mentor or uh, anybody else to, to know? Oh, well, I said to stay. Yeah. Right, so you didn't get black that. Here, let's, let's get a win. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's the first time you've gone to the chip tray. Yes. Here you go. Well, I was blessed to have had, been surrounded by a lot of Phenomenal people. Uh, not all of them were my leaders, but I did have phenomenal leaders. Um, as a special operator, um, we're, we take for granted our company. Um, and you're surrounded by a bunch of, of alphas, and we're all we we've all been through a, an attrition process where, like when I started, there were 36 of us. Only four of us graduated at the end of two year long pipeline of schools. Mm. Right, so all of us have been through this process. We're all, you know, we are all what's what's left. I made it through all these filters. Mm -hmm. um, so high performance environment, um, yeah. and you know, we we take we kind of take that for granted. Yeah, but phenomenal people. Uh, my team leader, uh, last name is Smith. He was one of my groomsmen at my wedding uh, in December, and he was my leader throughout the pipeline, and someone that I look up to uh, to this day. He was not always the most popular because of his decisions, but because I knew him and I knew his heart, I knew his what he was grounded upon, I trusted his direction and yeah I mean your, your bosses don't always do yeah. things that you like but I, I always knew, probably knew he had your back too he definitely had our backs even yeah. when we didn't know it right it didn't feel good to hear no yeah right nobody likes that you can't go there you can't do that um, but he held he held the line he held us accountable uh, integrity over everything we couldn't cut corners so yeah. one of the ways that, uh, you know, you, unfortunately you can't apply this in the business world, but one of the ways that they would hold us accountable uh, would be uh, eight counts, right? So the cadre through our pipeline, if we did something wrong, they would assign us eight counts, eight count bodybuilders. It's like a burpee, only worse. Yeah. We would get hundreds of these, thousands of these, and we would have a dry erase board where we'd have to keep a list of how many we have left and in our lunch breaks 
we would have to, still in uniform, all crisp, back in the days of BDUs when we actually got to iron our uniforms, uh, we would be in the hallway lined up doing eight count bodybuilders, knocking off a hundred at a time and adjusting the number on the board. Mm. It's a There's no cadre there to ensure that you're actually doing these things, right? So you can imagine the dissension in the ranks mm. where there's one guy with a dry erase yeah. mark and you're like, come on, man, just help us out. Yeah. Never. Yeah. Never. We paid up every single, every single one that we owed. Yeah. You know, looking back on that, I get to have this, get to have that conversation. Mm. Uh, appreciate the hard times because those are the times that grow us even closer in life. Yeah. And I mean, the the resilience it probably taught you and what you've how you've had to apply that is probably crazy. You're really going to hit on this and I'm showing a six? You can. Oh, no. Okay, so I've got a hit here. Mm -hmm. So this is exactly, yes. Okay. And there, so now we'll see what the next one would be. Because you would have done pretty good, but no. Right, but that's better. Yeah, we want the dealer to bust. Okay, there you go. So you're coming back. You might already be back. All right. So let's go to deployment. Okay. So you've got your first deployment, and what what is what's your first deployment? So after being in the military for uh, over three years, well, it's also very different than if I was 18 years old, graduated from high school, and joined the army. I would get a signing bonus and I could be in combat within six months of signing. In the Air Force and Special Operations, going through all that, all that training and all those schools, um, that's three years of intense training before we're even able to deploy. Yeah. So my first deployment, 2010 in June, and uh, I was on standby to replace anybody if they were if someone was incapacitated uh, then I had my bags packed and ready to go and I would be in country within the week if something were to happen so the team deploys I'm on standby uh, another unit goes to what's called a train up and to support a different facet of the war and where are you based at this point? I'm in Herbert Field, Florida, which is okay. Fort Walton Beach, Florida. Okay. So I get the call that one of the guys that went to this train up to do a different type of mission had injured his hand uh, with his pocket knife. He was working on his gear, cut his finger with his pocket knife, had to get stitches. So he was unable to finish that iteration of training, which was a pre-deployment process. So because he couldn't do that, I had to do a high five with him and take his spot, which means I was no longer going on my deployment that I was planning on. I went and did this different type of mission. So the different mission is called Combat Search or Rescue. My job is to uh, sit on the, on the base and watch screens Kind of like the born identity, you go into the mm -hmm. operations center, you see all the screens there. So I'm watching the war trans transpire in front of me, listening to the team radios, watching the uh, aircraft feed, live feed, watching the ground force commander communicate with the guys on the battlefield. 
and this I'm jocked up. This is air traffic controller. No. No. no, 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 no. I'm jocked up. I have my kit on. I've got my radios on. Yeah. Uh, bags are packed. Weapon is is ready to go. Um, beside a helicopter, that should something happen on the battlefield, my job is to run out there. The helicopter returning. I would board that along with three pararescue members, and we would fly out to the combat zone and I would be inserted to pick up where that person left off. So you could imagine wow. how intently uh, glued you are to those screens and those radio conversations because in an instant I could be out there. So that's very different than what I've been training for, right? I've been training to be out there all the time, but this is combat search and rescue. Yeah. So I'm, I'm praying that nothing bad happens um, but I'm also, you know, there's a lot of angst, right? You feel like Rudy Rudiger in the last scene where you just want to get out yeah. on the field. Um, but obviously I'm praying that nothing happens to, yeah. Yeah. to sort of draw me out there. Yeah. Uh, so that so was, was my first deployment. Was, was deployment, you know, we all have our ideas of what a deployment would be like. Was it totally unlike, you know, any expectations that you may have had or? Well, the beauty you know, this of this is a unique kind of deployment. It seems very like, unique. But, yeah. um, we recognize that we're the tip of the spear. We're on the battlefield. We're engaging the enemies, um, and that becomes the norm, right? That yeah. is our day to day. So, I say my deployment was very tame, but what it did was it brought the battlefield home to my parents and to a lot of our families as combat controllers because uh, September thirteenth or September sixteenth. Uh, 2010 Danny Sanchez was killed in combat and it just so happens that Danny Sanchez is the one that cut his hand mm. and I was the one that had to replace him mm. so he was serving where I was supposed to be mm. and he was killed by a member of his uh, Afghan team uh, so 13 days later Mark Forrester who is my best friend he was also killed in combat and my parents back home went to both of their funerals in my stead so my dad loaded up and drove to El Paso went to Danny Sanchez's funeral and then two weeks later drove to Haleyville Alabama and went to Mark Forrester's funeral so uh, you know a lot of a lot of people watching this are still scratching their heads about you know what is the Air Force doing on the battlefield yeah. well every um, every branch of the military has a special operations component and it's not all the chair force, right? Yeah. So there are uh, men and women today in the Air Force that are engaging the enemy. So we had done a good job of convincing my mom and dad, all of our moms and dads, that what we're doing is safe. We're in the Air Force, mom. Yeah, yeah don't worry. Everything's yeah. fine. So when I came home in November of 2010, it was a very, very different yeah. um, situation. And how much, how, how long a period of time was there between your first deployment and your second deployment? So in the Air Force, at the time, we had a one-to-one -one dwell ratio, meaning we are deployed for six months and back home for six months. Okay. So I did a six-month deployment. I was home for six months and then redeployed in June of 2011. What did you mainly do during that time of you being home? I assume that you want to head here. I'll stay. stay. My goodness. <laughs> so during that, six, during that six months... During that six months, you're home living the life that we're used to living. When we're home, 
we are training. We're staying current. So as a yeah. combat controller, we're doing... Wait, I've got to ask. Do, I you, know want, you, do. do you want some insurance? Uh, in the past, I would have loved to have paid you for insurance <laughs> in all facets of life. But today on this table, no, no, no thank insurance. you. I, I, don't, I don't need your insurance. You make a hard sell. Yeah. So you're just trying to live... You're training. Yeah. Maintaining currencies. So we're shooting, right? Small arms fire. Staying proficient and shooting our pistols and rifles and long-range weapons. Uh, we're still jumping out of planes, staying current and skydiving, airborne operations, uh, scuba diving, all these things. Yeah. We're having to keep doing riding dirt bikes, four-wheelers. It sounds like G.I. Joe. It sounds like we're all just having fun. But, you know, the military has a has an awesome reputation for taking all the things that we do, that you do for fun, and then making it dreadful mm -hmm. turning off the light and putting on a lot of weight on you yeah. right so skydiving is fun right get out there and jump out a perfectly good airplane but you know not, there's no such thing as a perfectly good airplane so we jump out at you know eighteen thousand feet on oxygen with a wall locker meaning we've got a 80 pound rucksack between our legs a weapon strapped to our side and we weigh you know we're like a 300 pound bag of bricks going out of the plane in pitch black at night with no night vision so uh, kind of different than your yeah your skydiving video that you yeah. post on <laughs> never done that I don't think I ever will Sorry. come on man um, <laughs> that's the name of the game yeah, so, so that's what we're doing, doing we're training a yeah. lot of training um, so what is a combat controller right yeah I, I couldn't answer it's a good I question answer. Combat controller is the air-to-ground liaison providing air traffic control and fire support in combat. Oh, boy. Ooh, that's a good split. Mm -hmm. Always splitting, especially mm -hmm. if I'm showing a six. Yep. Wow, this is perfect. Big. But you've well, not that small, big. Small, I, it's a, it's yeah. a limping bet. You here, know? here. No, 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 no. <laughs> you viewers would not appreciate right. that. That charity. All right, let's, let's finish this really quick. So... You're showing two eights, so. I can double down on that, right? Can't, yeah, I guess so. I, we'll let it happen, I mean, I guess. I'll just take it. <laughs> wow, that's good, okay. Would have been good, stay. Okay. Oh boy. Oh wow. I'll stay. 15 against it, six. Yeah, I'll stay. Big card. Thank you. Yes. Gosh, I wish you had some big currency out there. That's all right. Hey. Okay, so let's... Um, so that's what the combat controller is, right? Yeah. I'm the one, uh, it comes from forward air controllers, if your uh, viewers are familiar with Vietnam era, right? We're the ones with the big radio on our back calling in airstrikes from behind enemy lines. Hmm. Uh, Today, that looks like two radios on my chest. I'm communicating with inner team. So I'm attached to an Army ODA, a special operations team, and uh, they all have a different role to play on the battlefield as a team of 12 guys. And my role is communications, right? Yeah. Whatever we're doing on the battlefield, running and gunning and kicking in doors and engaging the enemy, if we encounter a threat necessary of bigger weapons, then it's my job to call in airstrikes. So that's what a combat controller does. Yeah. So it's a lot of multitasking. It's a <clears throat> but lot. you weren't doing that in deployment one. 
your first one to one I was a combat controller basically on standby yeah okay but deployment let's talk about the second deployment now right so are you going straight into a role like that? yes yep so in June late June 2000 and I got a okay it is give me a five gosh you right well, don't feel bad. Yeah. It was a possible contingency. Where's one? Yeah, I gotta take it. <laughs> it was possible that I would be all out of chips by now. You know, I mean, we're doing good. I love your method of wagering, too. It's just kind of, that's what I'm feeling. It's sporadic. It's gotta be. It's gotta Very be. sporadic. Okay, so deployment. Deployment number two. Deployment. First of all, in between those deployments, right? There's the mission side, uh, but there's also the, the family piece right yeah. so I come home in November of 2010 and I continue a tradition that I had started in the year prior of going to the Forrester family's house for Thanksgiving so when I got home from my first deployment me and my family went to the Forrester's house for yeah. Thanksgiving I had gone with Mark um, in 2008 to be with his family at Thanksgiving because it was more convenient driving from Florida to Alabama and when he was killed in combat, uh, I went back. And that was a tradition I carried on for the next 11 years. So for 11 years, I was spending all my Thanksgivings with his family and all the Christmases with my own family. So uh, in between the deployments was catching up with Gold Star families, so the Sanchez's and the Foresters. So my second deployment, I got to uh, prepare for. I knew exactly where I was going. I was at the time and in the war it was about village stability operations so our job is to attach to an army ODA and we are going outside of the, the compound and um, providing logistics logistical support for Afghan local police officers so our job is to provide to prepare them to be able to provide safety security for their land whenever we would eventually leave the war this is in 2011 Right, so we're providing weapons, training, ammunition, food, uniforms, schedules, tactics. We're teaching them all these things, right? And it was six months ago, well, it was, yeah, six months ago uh, in 2011 to September of 2010 that two of my best friends were killed in combat by the same types of people that we are there now to support. Mm. It's a very difficult yeah. uh, work environment yeah. where you don't know who you can trust. And you might be able to trust somebody wholeheartedly one day, yeah. but behind the scenes, someone is impacting that person or their family and they show up to work that day with a very different agenda. Mm -hmm. um, so you always have to be watching your back. And that's who we're there to support and train. So we were a team of 12 guys and myself. We load up in three huge vehicles, about literally about the size of this room. Uh, and me as the combat controller, I want to be on the outside. I want to be in the bed of the truck so that I have situational awareness of everything that's going on around me. So while we're driving around Afghanistan, I've got 
my radios, which are constantly synced to, nav to satellites. I've got a moving map tool on my Panasonic Toughbook. Um, I'm marking waypoints that could be potential sites for something that could happen in the future. Like there might be something over that ridge line that looks like a good possible uh, point of origin of a you know enemy attack. Yeah. So I'm annotating those things, writing out coordinates, just so that if something happens, I and I have my head down, I already have information that I could immediately pass to aircraft overhead to get their eyes on what I want them to be looking at. So while the rest of the team is focused on their their role, of their riding the vehicle, you don't really see a lot. It's like you're in a submarine inside that vehicle. You've got glass this thick. Um, but my job is going on the entire time so I've been on my team for seven days this is the seventh day um, and we're going out to a place that we that we hadn't been to yet a village is called Johnny Kale and we're driving south we start picking up interteam communication from the enemy that um, that takes us off of our route we pursue them we don't find anything we come back to our route we start picking up more ICOM chatter that uh, they see us, they're wondering if we're going to stop. They tell they are talking about how many vehicles we are, how many personnel we have. So uh, we're getting prepared for something to happen, right? So we come up to a large riverbed, dry riverbed called a wadi, and the first vehicle goes down and up and through this wadi and takes a defensive posture on the other side to provide cover for us as we go through. Uh, we go into the wadi on the same tracks as the vehicle in front of us, and we get more inter-team communication that um, they're wondering if we're going to get out of the vehicle. At this point, my interpreter is in the bed of the vehicle with me because he's listening to that chatter. He's interpreting it, telling it to me, and I'm relaying it to the team leader in the passenger seat of the vehicle. We start to come out of the wadi. I put my hands up on the turret and lean back into my heels. And as we start to come up out of the wadi, the improvised explosive device goes off underneath the bottom of the, underneath the rear axle of the vehicle that I was in. And when I opened my eyes, I could see nothing but the orange haze and I could smell and taste the chemical noxious fumes from the homemade explosive device, as well as the diesel that I was pouring out and when I sat up, I had been flipped up on, flipped up onto the turret. My helmet had gone back, I had a laceration on my throat. And when I sat up and looked down, uh, I could see the bottoms of both of my feet looking back up at me. My interpreter, Enzo, was unconscious in the floorboard uh, and I was losing blood. And I put my headset back on and maneuvered myself and raised my legs off to the side and then communicated, you know, grabbed my weapon and started to scan the village that was to our southeast, about 200 meters, and communicated to the team leader inside the vehicle that I don't see any activity in the village. I've got two broken legs. Enzo has a broken leg and I need a medic. Mm -hmm. And I, um, all of that was that calmly stated, but that last phrase was probably a little bit more elevated. 
I remember repeating that part a couple of times. Can you remember, like, first of all, oh my gosh. Um, and I've never heard you necessarily tell that story um, the way that you did. So thank you so much just for telling the story and for for just um, why, you, why you sacrifice, man. And um, so in that moment, like, can you just remember it in slow motion almost? I mean, I can... I can remember it in whatever speed you'd like. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, but I, I de- I'm blessed in the fact that I do remember it. I didn't yeah. lose consciousness. Yeah, I was knocked out for as long as it takes for my body to have flipped over up and up, up and onto the turret. I was fortunate I wasn't knocked off of the vehicle because at that point we were about 12 feet from the ground. I would have, I could have been killed just from the fall. Um, but I'm also blessed that I was conscious and I remember every single thing because so many of my peers, fellow wounded warriors, have to be told at a later date, right? They're in a coma and then they'll be kept in a coma, medically induced coma, sometimes a week, two weeks, yeah. months. Yeah. They wake up and they come out of this and their whole world has changed in the blink of an eye and they have to be told, you know, that they lost people or that you know, they're a triple amputee and these are the things that have happened in, in the times that you've been out. So I'm incredibly fortunate to remember everything. I'm glad that I had such flimsy little legs that they just turned to dust and, you know, absorbed all the, all the energy because it didn't impact my nugget. You don't at all. have flimsy little legs because <laughs> you still got them. I'm, which I want to, I want to hear, we're going to hear more about that, but, um, but yeah. So in that moment, um, I don't want to keep dealing cards, but I don't want to interrupt this story, right? So in that moment, how did that preparedness kind of start taking action? When you tell people that story, I get blown up. Everything has changed, right? Yeah. You know, if you're looking in, everything is different. But for me, nothing has changed. I'm still doing my job. I'm still reacting to what's going on on the battlefield. I am a limb factor right now. I'm a limiting factor to my team's safety. So I'm immediately engaged in grabbing my weapon and scanning and looking for a follow-on attack that my training has told me is coming. Um, And as soon as I had done my job, you know, then I'm like, all right, well, we need a medic. Yeah. (laughs) No, I need a medic. I was, you know, so that's nothing, that has nothing to do with me being a cool guy or me being Superman. And everything to do with your tax dollars hard at work, right? Yeah. Everything that led up to that point was preparing me for that point. Yeah. That's, it's no different for everyone else in whatever situation they find themselves in. I believe that everything that you do, every day that you have, you know, if something comes at you, you've you've got what you need to be prepared for that moment to be able to conquer it. So it's it's never been about why me and always about what's next yeah and that's been my mindset ever since yeah well that that explains a lot the the positivity that you have and the the ability that you have to kind of go through all the challenges that you've had um you know then with such a solid mind to be honest um so were you about to say something well the positivity I knew why I was there. 
right? Yeah. I, I, was, I was confident in what I was doing. I believed in what I was doing. I was serving yeah. my country. I was proud of the work I was doing. Um, and, but I also knew that you know, things could change, right? On the battlefield, what's that, eight months prior, two of my best friends were killed in an instant. Yeah. Right. So I was blessed enough to open my eyes. Mm-hmm. I'm still here. I'm still doing my job. Yeah. Um, and, you know, today, fast forwarding, but we'll we'll get there. Today, I'm wearing a very different uniform, but I'm still committed to doing the same job, which is yeah. serving others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. OK, so let's get into kind of what. I feel like Let's, I deserve a blackjack. Let's see it. <laughs> you do too. My oh, yes. goodness. Let's go. <laughs> I Look at that. We it. bet. Yes. Um, it is, no, I'm not taking your chips. I'm giving you chips. Okay, so. There should be those four and two more. Didn't it? Yes, okay, yeah. There you go. I think. It is. I think, it, I think it's like one and a half. One right? and a half. Um, I think every table is a little different but okay so now it's recovery time yes well would you even call that recovery time right now it's almost triage well now it's trauma yeah all right so this is the IED goes off it takes about an hour for me to get to higher care loaded up on a stretcher and loaded into the helicopter to fly me to Sharana uh, I'm conscious the entire time. I'm, communi- I'm communicating the entire time. I remember things started to get hazy as I was being offloaded from the helicopter on the helipad. I remember how hot it was, uh, especially whenever they took me out into the heat, but then also the rotor wash from the helicopter was very hot. I remember being carted into the operating to the OR. I remember clothes being taken off me. I remember communicating to, to doctors. Now I can't see anything. I can just remember speaking. Uh, and then the last thing that I remember was after I'd been given my, my cocktail before going back from my first set of x-rays before surgery, uh, the nurse leaned down to me as they were pushing me back and said, think a good dream and dream that dream. And the last thing I thought was, what the heck? And I was out, right? So, you know, someone in that position has got to know that little, they got to come up with something a little bit more profound, yeah. you know, than, than think a good dream and dream that like Tinkerbell. Like, uh, but that was the last thing I thought, last thing yeah. I heard until I wake up the next day uh, with my commander around me. Uh, pinning medals on my chest, getting a combat action medal and a purple heart. That happens uh, the next day. Oh yeah, as soon as you wow. wake up, you know we, you know when when movies like Stripes, they're all running around the base and they're jodying. Mm-hmm. Jodies are, that's what it's called when they're chanting while they're running. I want to be an army ranger, right? Uh, so one of the ones that we we sing is you know if I. You know, tell my mom I did my best, pin my medals on my chest. Um, yeah, as soon as you wake up, they're there to present you with those awards. Wow. Uh, at that point, it wasn't 100% certain that I was going to survive. Yeah. Uh, so my, while I was unconscious, my dad, 
here in Fort Worth, Texas, working at Lockheed Martin at the time, gets a phone call. And if you've ever had somebody deployed, when the phone call, when the phone rings, uh, all right. Say. No, no. There you go. When the phone rings, it's it could be from, you know, it looks crazy on your cell phone. Yeah. Right. It could be a bunch of numbers. It could be a few numbers. It could be some words. Yeah. But it's coming from a satellite phone, so my parents knew this is my second deployment that that means my boy is calling me. Right. Yeah. So my dad answers the phone, and it's my commander. Uh, Chris Larkin, and he says, Chief, my dad was a chief in the Air Force, and he says, Chief, Chris Larkin, he's alive, and I'm gonna go get our boy. So as a parent, you know how long those seconds felt mm. in, the, in the amount of time from hearing someone else's voice and hearing my commander's voice, who they knew, my parents had met my commander before I deployed, um, hearing his voice, assuming the worst in an instant, and the first thing that he said was, he's alive, and I'm gonna go get him. And that's There's probably did. purpose to it being that quick, because oh, they know yeah. the mental anguish that's going on. Absolutely, yeah. Yep. So, yeah. Wow. Um, so yeah, that starts the process of getting home. It would take, I had a lot of wound uh, washouts, a lot of surgery, I had seven surgeries by the time I got home, it took seven days to get me from uh, Bagram to Launchstool, Germany to Walter Reed and then to San Antonio where I would spend the next two years Okay, in Germany? No, in oh. uh, San Antonio. Oh, okay. okay. Germany. I was there for four days Okay, yeah, I think you want to split that Split sevens against a six against a six. I think I Mean I that's what my gut tells me. I mean uh, 16, Chad. 9. 14. I get to 6, I'm supposed to stay. You have a bus. You got to think I'm going to bus. Yeah. Very good chance. My man. Yes. <laughs> so, seven days. Uh, I'm back in San Antonio. My dad's got connections, so my dad is actually. He walks up the ramp of the C-130 at Kelly Air Force Base and is the first person I see when the ramp lowers down. He squats down to my stretcher. Um, and then my mom and dad rode in the ambulance with me to BAMC, Brooks Hour Medical Center, where I would spend the next two years in care. Uh, I met my, uh, my surgeon the next day, after he had reviewed my charts, he's standing at the foot of my bed, introduces himself, his name is Dr. Shu, which is appropriate because I didn't wear a shoe for like a year after my injury, but his name is Dr. Shu, uh, head of orthopedic care there at Bamsey. And at the time, you know, wars are, are good in the medical industry because you get to you get a lot of iterations of very similar injuries yeah. you can come up with new ways of of repairing them a lot of um personnel landmines were taking guys limbs 
right? A lot yeah. of guys losing legs, one leg, two legs, um, a lot of amputations. So this process of limb salvage um, was really pushed forward by my surgeon and my team to follow on, prosthetist and and uh, physical therapy of, yes, we could amputate these legs. And in the field, they said that I was gonna be a double amputee. They could amputate, but we could also do limb salvage and be able to save them and get you to, to where you need to be. So he's standing at the foot of the bed, introduces himself. He says, after looking at your chart, your left leg is horrible. It's almost beyond repair. It's the worst I've ever seen, actually. Uh, and your right leg is even worse. <laughs> but I have a plan and you're gonna walk again. So that started um, years of corrective surgeries on my legs in order to keep them. And today I rolled in here in a wheelchair, which is not yeah. common, right? When I met yeah. you, I was walking around. But two months ago, I had my 33rd limb salvage surgery to be able to keep my legs. Uh, and. Wearing pants, most people would never know that anything was wrong with me. Uh, anything was wrong with my legs. The end state, what that, what those surgeries have done is fused my ankles in a 90 degree uh, to where my feet will never move again, but I wear braces that allow me to do everything that I've ever wanted to do. I still, I mean, I still scuba dive, still skydive, um, still haven't found any, any limitations. Yeah. You know, I say that I don't run anymore, but you know, I'm not missing out on much. You know, running sucks. <laughs> Everybody does it badly. So this positivity that you have, man, is is um, pretty crazy. And um, you're gonna stay. Let's go ahead. Let's see. Yeah. Okay, we got a good good thing going right now. What do you credit, kind of that? you know, your overall mindset too, because it's, it's unique. You know, there's a lot of people have gone through things a lot, a lot less than what you've gone through and they have a hard time getting out of bed just from a, from a mental state. Right. So what would you credit just that, that positive nature that you have? Uh, for me, it's always been my faith. Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, to, I knew why I was there. I knew what I was doing and uh, I knew that, Life is short. Life is meant to be difficult. Um, and I was prepared to die on the battlefield, yeah. right? When we're training and preparing for this, the ones that you introduced me as a hero, the ones that pay the ultimate sacrifice, those are the heroes, right? My friends that have gone before me and have, have been in the exact same situation as me and not been able to come home to their families and. Um, those are the true heroes. Um, so I am, you know, how in the world could I hang my head whenever they paid the ultimate sacrifice? It's on me to live the rest of my life to make them proud, yeah. right? I'm forever supporting their families, loving on them. Uh, you know, they lose one, but in our communities, they gain hundreds of people that are constantly checking in on them for the rest of their lives. Um, you know, so absolutely faith, right? Yeah. And 
So I'm not afraid. I wasn't afraid to die. I mm -hmm. wanted to do my job. I wanted to serve my team as best I could. That's not wanting to be a cool guy. It's not wanting to die, but it's like, I'm here to do a job. Yeah. I'm in someone else's country and they don't want us here. Yeah. Right. So I can't be mad at the fact that I got blown up. Mm -hmm. Right. I went looking for it. Yeah. Uh, my license plate says got me because they did, you know, yeah. they got me, but they didn't take me out. Right best thing that I get to take from that situation is perspective for the rest of my life. I was blessed to have been able to open my eyes and carry on with the mission. And like I said before, I'm not running and gunning on the battlefield, but I'm still in the exact same mindset of positioning myself in a way and preparing myself for any way that I can be of service to others. And as I've found, doing exactly this, sharing my testimony, sharing my story is, is how I'm doing that today. Yeah. Tell me, you know, talking about the mindset and the mental side of things, you're going to say, it was a good call. Let's see. Oh, you know, PTSD is a real thing, right? Have you suffered with that at all? Post-traumatic stress yeah. is, is a real thing. There's a lot of people that are you know, trying to remove the D, remove the disorder uh, aspect of that. Okay. okay. Uh, so post-traumatic stress is a yeah. real thing, but it's not a scary thing. And it's yeah. not something that is only pertained to combatants. Yeah. Right? When I was 16, I was driving with my mom, which is already a stressful iteration enough, driving my mom in the passenger seat, critiquing my driving. Uh, but I'm in Dallas traffic and she's telling me to stop, slow down. And I did not. And I rear into the car in front of us. Right. So I tail, I was at a fender bender to this day. I feel that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, but that's not, that's not a bad thing. Right. That's the beauty of the, of the mind, the human mind. Things happen to you. That are, that are intentional, right? Uh, or extreme enough that you remember and your body is trying to provide you a way of avoiding that um, in the future, right? So I will forever just give so much more space than, I mean, everybody else is like, why are you so far back for the rest of my, for my whole life? I've just yeah. maintained a yeah. lot of space. I don't do it anymore, yeah. that's right? It's not a bad thing. Yeah. Everybody has post-traumatic stress. Yeah, Something has really happened in your life yeah. and your brain remembers and it's going to try to protect you yeah. from allowing that to happen again. Um, for me, I was never diagnosed with a uh, TBI or a traumatic brain injury. I was not diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. I attribute that to what we're doing here yeah. because while I was in the, well, from the moment I opened my eyes, I've been talking about it. Yeah. I, have, I haven't suppressed anything. While I was in the hospital in San Antonio, an inpatient for three months, I had a full room of visitors all the time. Yeah. My mom was constantly trying to run security, keeping people out, and I was always saying, let them come in, right? Talking all, again, San Antonio is military, military capital of the world, and there are not many Air Force 
wounded warriors that are that are in these hospital rooms. So all these brass, all these generals are coming to visit, uh, shaking my hand, and I'm telling the story. Yeah. Right. After a morning after a surgery, I get asked to go and speak on a panel to a hundred brigadier generals, these guys that had just put on their first star, and uh, they brought in a Navy, Marine, Army, and an Air. They needed an Air Force guy on this panel to talk about our experiences. And it was in that meeting where I spoke, and as you, you can imagine, I was probably the most verbose. I was the, probably the most uh, engaging. Uh, I realized that people had no clue what was actually going on, right? I mean, that's where this conversation started. You know, was your deployment and going on a deployment? Was it what you expected? Was it, you know, what was that like? Yeah. Well, our leaders also feel the exact same yeah. way. They haven't been there, right? Mm-hmm. You, when a civilian thinks about the military, you think everybody's carrying a weapon, everybody is an expert shooter, yeah. and everybody's ready to go to war. That's not the way it is. Yeah. That's where I started with the military being one of the best businesses because we have finance guys, we have yeah. you know uh, accountants, we have lawyers, um, police, we have all these different things to be able to to make everything work. It's a very small percentage of us, especially in the Air Force, that are engaging the enemy, that are firing weapons every single week, that are calling in airstrikes. So I recognized how necessary it was and beneficial it was for me to share my perspectives from the battlefield. And I did so uh, for them, those generals, and then have been doing so yeah. now for 12 years in businesses. Yeah, you're great at it. Yeah. Well, I, I enjoy doing it. I enjoy doing this, right? Yeah. I enjoy connecting with people. I enjoy the conversations I have after I get off the stage yeah. because those are the ones that are truly impactful, truly meaningful, and they drive home the purpose for being there so much more so than any paycheck. Yeah. I, re- I really like your perspective on the the business that is the military and that they are very good at what they do. Um, is there any, because obviously from a mental health standpoint, being deployed or just being in military at all has its challenges, right? And, um, you know, I'm helping employers that have mostly employees that get to go home every day, that get to go home with their to their families. Um, and I'm working to try to solve kind of the mental health crisis that we see in America right now, mm-hmm. right? Um, is there anything that the military is doing that really supports the mental health of troops um, that we could learn from? Unfortunately, the military is um, at the whims of all the other influencers in society, right? I don't, it's not a, it's not a business issue. It's not a military issue. Uh, it's a cultural issue. And it's the fact that we as, as individuals are so mortified of lowering our, bar- our walls and communicating yeah. with others, especially whenever it's to do so in need of help. Yeah. Uh, we're so afraid of saying, raising your hand and saying that you need help, that you don't feel good, that something is wrong. Yeah. Businesses and the military alike are spending millions of dollars in order to thwart this. Um, 
but what's necessary are more people to begin the work of lowering their walls and, and yeah. speaking up. Every single time somebody does so, like when I give a public public engagement and those people that come up afterward, that's what it's all about, yeah. right? Because me lowering my walls, talking about how difficult things are, but uh, relying on my, my network that I've been intentional about Mm-hmm. surrounding myself with the right people all my life um, and recognizing that those are the people that are going to be there when you fall that's huge that's, that's really what I'm what I'm speaking about yeah. it's about being intentional about the people you surround yourself with right yeah. because um, how was I able to go from being loaded on a stretcher to being here today and having the mindset I do it's my faith it's also my family um and my sphere of influence, which I was intentional about pouring into for every day that I had, so that on the day that I fell, they were all there to support me and take care of me. Likewise, in business, or in life, uh, for everybody else, um, take advantage of the days you know, that we have to pour into other people, right? Because those are gonna be the ones that are gonna be there to support you. Uh, oftentimes what I've learned is the best way to support somebody else is lowering your own walls and sharing that yeah. you're going through something because it makes it so much more inviting for them to say yeah. me too yeah. you know, I, I've been going through the exact same thing I haven't talked about it yeah. um, so businesses provide the resources um People need to own it, but people need to walk through the door. Yeah, right. That's the difficult. That's hard. Yeah. That's hard. Yeah. I'm not gonna downplay that, right? Yeah. Because, you know, one of the things that that we mentioned earlier was that, you know, and it's easy for us to say this generation isn't communicating. You know, right? Yeah. Uh, it's unfortunate that this generation has this, right? Yeah. And we're looking at this so much more than we're engaging face to face. It's not a surprise that we're. It's not a surprise. We're struggling as much as that. Yeah. It's not just this generation. Yeah. We're all struggling. Yeah. Um, we think that this is gonna is gonna keep us together, but yeah, we know. Your a lot of your viewers know that uh, it's these types of interactions, these type of connections, is the reason we're sitting here playing blackjack today. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully, that can connect with people encourage them to lower their walls, uh, share their story. You don't have to do so with someone you don't know. Take your time, be intentional about today, and call somebody that you haven't talked to in a long time. Yeah. Right? Everybody's got, you know, a long list of, of contacts in their phone that, what are they doing there? Yeah. We have hundreds of numbers in our phone. Yeah. And we don't, just think to call them. Mm-hmm. If I'm ever on a long road trip, I will scroll through my numbers and call some random people. Yeah. And I encourage people to try that. Yeah. Let's finish this hand, but I want to hear kind of, you know, what you want people to know of what you're doing right now. And I assume you want to hit here. Um, 14. Yes, a 14. I need a card. Oh my gosh. 17. Yes. 
Sorry, uh, of course. Took your chips there. You did. That was a big bet. So too. what do you, what do you what do you uh here's, what do you, here's one more one more piece on the my mindset and my positivity and how can I not hang my head and like I said, it's my family and my faith and that why me, what's next mentality. But also in 2011, um, it was Boomtown in Afghanistan. Look like you have a blackjack. No, I'm actually hoping that you go aggressive here because I don't have a good hand right now. I I don't know how aggressive I can go there, but I definitely need a card. (laughs) I don't think you should split threes. 16. I have to take a card. Yes. There you go. I got 16. Oh, 18. This is 18, right? Yeah. So when I went to, when I was doing rehab for two years down in San Antonio, I'm, it was busy. There were a lot of wounded warriors down there. It was an incredible environment. I'm surrounded by people who are, in looking at them, so much worse off than me, Mm -hmm. right? I've got my legs and I'm surrounded by peers that are, oh, you don't even let me put a bed out there. I'm surrounded by peers that, you know, are triple amputees, quadruple amputees, paralyzed, um, burn victims. Yeah. And how in the world could I hang my head and complain about my situation whenever I'm watching a a 19-year-old who just came home from the battlefield, a triple amputee, his life is forever changed, and he and another triple ABT are balancing on medicine balls and knocking each other off and cracking up, having the time of their lives, right? Like, it is, it's all perspective, right? You put it into perspective. Yeah. If they're able to do that, how in the world can I not be the exact same? Yeah, that's a good message, man. It's a good message. Um, It only gives us what we can handle. Yeah. Yeah. And I've had so many people, even uh, parents of these of the gold star, you know, the gold star families whose sons were my friends. They've they've told me the same thing. Like, wow, you're so positive. And I don't think that you know my son would have handled being wounded like you have. Yeah. You know. And I'm like, sure they would. Yeah. We how many stories like you don't know what you can deal with and what you can handle until. It's asked of you. Yeah. I'm not gonna go looking to hurt myself. I was never injured. I had, I mean, I broke a finger once. Yeah. I had zero injuries in my life, really, until I was catastrophically blown up on the battlefield, right? But because of being intentional about why I was there, being intentional about the people that I surrounded myself with, being confident in my faith and why I was there and being prepared to get, to die, Waking up and recognizing how fortunate and blessed I was to get another day, that's how I have to approach every single day. I was the, I spent years, four years of my life to become the tip of the spear, to be that force on the battlefield. And in an instant, in an explosion, I go from being the tip of the spear to being cargo. And I'm in the way. And I'll spend the rest of my life supporting and uh, you know paying respect and honor to all these people that make up the rest of the spear right mm. because you can't do anything um, 
as the tip of the spear without everything else that makes up the inertia and the driving force yeah. of that uh, spear. Such an inspiration, man. It's such an inspiration. So what are you, what are you uh, doing these days? Um, what are you kind of focused on these days? I'm trying to do more of this. Yeah. You know, speaking with, yeah. I mean, not blackjack, obviously. <laughs> um, hey, I think you're, you're going to end up on top. I don't, I don't know if you want to hit right now, though. I don't. Okay. I don't. So. 12, I chose two. wisely. Yes. Yeah. That uh, might, but, that but might be a speaking, good way to so, end I have a own consulting company uh, that I started whenever I um, got out of the military, and I've been doing public speaking ever since. Yeah. Like I said, ever since I opened my eyes, I've been, I've been talking. Yeah. I've seen you at a rotary before, and you did an excellent job appreciate it. Um, what does what does the future look like for you in terms of maybe goals for your legs um, etc you know like I've had my 33rd surgery my short-term goal is to be ambulatory as quickly as possible because uh, we're on the clock in the yellow household my wife uh, is due to have our first baby wow. in January Congratulations. so uh, I'm excited to get out of the wheelchair and start walking again because I imagine I'm going to be making a lot of late night trips to the uh, to the changing table. Yes. So I just yeah. want to be able to support her, right? So that's uh, that may not sound like a big goal, yeah. but that's that's, that's what matters great. most to me. So yeah. my legs, you know, that's the physical stuff is always the easy part for me. Yeah. You know. The mental stuff that we touched on, and we can talk for hours more yeah. about that stuff. Uh, you know, that's that's the stuff that requires true work. Yeah. But the physical stuff. When I had this surgery, I had the option of amputating. Mm -hmm. Right. So a couple of months ago, I was given the option of doing nothing or amputating or having this surgery to fix it, and I chose to have a thirty-third surgery to fix it because every time I've done so, it's been one step forward or one step back and five steps forward. It's always gotten better. Uh, so long-term goal for my legs. I mean, I'll ride these things until yeah, and, yeah, you know, until I can't anymore. Yeah, but it's not the end of the world if I should ever have to amputate one or both. Yeah, uh, I'll be fine. Well, thank you is not enough. Um, you are truly a hero, and I can't wait for people to um, to be able to just kind of hear this conversation that we had and be inspired by you. I want to count these to see <laughs> to see where we're at because I think we made some money. We're, we're just gonna go ahead and you know say two hundred fifty bucks. <laughs> All right, there you go. I appreciate it. Two hundred fifty bucks for wounded warriors and first responders. Uh, you'll see the zipper in the back. So if you have leg injuries, leg impairments, or an amputee, we can fit you with custom cowboy boots. Uh, with an insignia of your choice uh, for, for are these yours? These are mine, yes. Okay. That's really cool, man. Yeah. So that's the So it's like a thank you gift almost. Huh? So this is yeah, that's exactly what we call it. We call this a tangible thank you for your sacrifice. Yeah. It's amazing. Well thank you. And I don't know if that's gonna get even a pair of boots because these are pretty nice boots. <laughs> but um, thanks for doing this and um, I really appreciate it, man. And thanks for your friendship. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Good to know you. Yeah, welcome to the excellence culture, man. Appreciate it. Yeah.